0: joy for me to be here today. Uh, I'm excited for the Master's University. My wife graduated from an older affiliated school, the Master's College. Um, uh, twice. She got two different degrees from here and she's uh, uh, loving it. Um, she's sp- always speaks kindly of the school. She's excited that I get to be here today. It is a privilege to be at this this pulpit and to speak to you all. I'm grateful for the Lord's work in the life of this university in the lives of the students and uh, I'm thankful for you all. If you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. I've been preaching through the book of Revelation at Emmanuel Bible and there's these Three verses that are tucked in here in the middle of chapter 13, chapter, verses 8, 9, and 10. These verses have been a tremendous encouragement to my heart. Uh, I have been meditating on them, praying through them, memorizing them, and I've just been, my affections and my heart have been captured by them, and so I want to turn to them this morning. It's Revelation 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. Let me read them. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. And the it there is the Antichrist. The it is the first beast out of the pit of hell. Verse 8 says, all who dwell on earth will worship the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken into captivity... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Superman hails from the planet Krypton. Any element from the planet Krypton that descends into the Earth's atmosphere takes on a new radioactive function. And there's a name for it, a technical name. If you're majoring in physics, you've learned this. It's called kryptonite. Krypton, when it intersects with any element of the radon molecular spectrum, is ionized and becomes kryptonite. And that's okay if you're on the planet Krypton because all of the planet Krypton is kryptonized. But Superman, if you're familiar with him, you guys know about this, right? I and mean, what are they teaching in schools these days? <laughs> if you're outside of the planet Krypton and you find yourself safe, for example, to choose a planet at random on Earth that has the presence of radon and kryptonite comes to the Earth and you intersect with it, it weakens you. It takes you out at the knees. It could even kill you. It shows that no matter how strong you might be, you have a critical weakness. One little ion can fell you if you're allergic to kryptonite. Now, kryptonite originally started out as the ruby color of red until the printing press that ran the Superman comic books decided that was too expensive to run. It was cheaper to print it as green, and so we know kryptonite as that green element. If you were to come in contact with it, it would, it would weaken you. Possibly even kill you now, as I mentioned, this is fictional you don 't need to add this to the list of things to be worried about. Cross it off the list mostly because in the late 1950s, the publisher of the uh, Superman comic book series got kind of tired of all of the krypton storylines, and so he invented this new plot twist where all of the earth was kryptonized, <laughs> so everybody on the earth is now immune to krypton, so you don 't need to worry about it anymore in Revelation chapter thirteen, we find. The Antichrist, we're introduced to him. He's empowered by the dragon, which is the devil himself. He's the most evil person that has ever walked on the earth. The Antichrist is. He has an unmatched capacity for evil. He's unrivaled in his villainous ways. He can cause the whole earth to fall at his feet and worship him. He can bring the nations of the earth together in some kind of demonic alliance unseen in world history. He is indeed an unrivaled human being, unmatched in his evil and his demonic ways. He has the capacity to bring destruction to the earth that is is unparalleled. Nothing else can compare to him apart from the judgment of our Lord. He can bring affliction, harm, and suffering to the earth unseen in human history. But he has a weakness. He has his own version of kryptonite. No matter how incredible the Antichrist seems, he has a weakness. He is so contrary to God. He cannot stand against the sovereignty of God, and that's really what you see in Revelation 13. You're exposed to this man of unrivaled evil, and yet you immediately realize that everything he does is pale in comparison to the glory of Jesus Christ. You see that the Antichrist is not his own man. He's he's under the authority of the devil. You see, he's not original. He's just imitating our Lord Jesus, who was literally crucified, buried, and resurrected. The Antichrist gets a fake head wound and a fake resurrection. His best attempt at captivating the world's attention is just a poor imitation of the real miracles of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As God the Father sends Jesus into the earth, the dragon says the Antichrist Into the earth. As the Holy Spirit comes to cause you to worship the Son, the false prophet is going to come later in chapter 13 to cause you to worship the Antichrist. It's a trinity of evil you see here, but it is a poor imitation of the real glory of our Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at these verses 8 through 10 and show you how they expose the Antichrist impotency how they expose his inability that no matter how evil he is no matter how good he thinks he is no matter how proud and strong and powerful he seems he's not god god is a savior the antichrist damns people God forgives sin. The Antichrist has no capacity to forgive sin. God is merciful. The Antichrist has no capacity for mercy. God answers prayers and forgives sinners. The Antichrist hinders prayers and accuses sinners. They are opposite in every way except that he is an imitator. He's an imitator. You see here, the kryptonite for the Antichrist is really the power of the gospel. The glory of the resurrected Lamb of God. The power of the gospel fells the Antichrist. The power of the gospel exposes how shallow his demonic plan really is. The Antichrist kryptonite is seen in the glory of the gospel five ways. If you're taking notes, five ways. The first way, you see the glory of the gospel demonstrate its power over the Antichrist. Is the condition that requires it, the condition that requires the gospel, namely depravity. Depravity, look at verse 8. It says, All who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist. Everyone who dwells on the earth will fall for this demonic ploy. The tribulation begins, the Antichrist making a false covenant of peace with the nations of the earth. He takes the Arab nations in the Middle East and makes peace with the, the European nations of the world. He signs his peace treaty in Jerusalem. He brings a false promise of global peace to the world that is believed by everybody. That false promise of peace is broken and it gives way to global war where a fourth of the earth dies in the fourth seal of the book of Revelation chapter 6 followed by plagues and atrocities unseen in human history. The earth is plunged into depravity. The people who see the Antichrist unmasked don't have their eyes open to the truth. They insist on worshiping him and the dragon, the devil himself that is behind him. But notice this phrase, all who are on the earth Will worship him. This is an exclusive phrase. Every individual on the earth will worship the Antichrist. Everyone is deceived by him. Now, there's an exception clause coming later. We'll see the few people on the earth who are not tricked by his wily ways. But for the most part, every individual is trapped. Everybody believes the lie. Everybody has a heart inclined to worship the Antichrist. Everybody has that love of sin in their life. This is global. Chapter 12 says it'll be everybody from every nation, every tribe, every language group. There is no place to hide. There's no rock under which you can escape the Antichrist authority. Nobody gets away. There's a small segment of the population described in in chapter 12 that escapes into the wilderness. God protects them, the 144,000. Apart from that group, nobody can escape the death the Antichrist brings. Everybody follows him. Their hearts love him. They believe the lie. They honor him. They they follow after him, and they actually worship him. They exalt him as if he were a god. This is the evilest person who has ever lived, and he is worshipped by every human being on the earth that shows you the capacity for sin that is in the human hearts. Let me put it this way. Do you think those alive during the tribulation are more evil? Are more susceptible to sin? Are more depraved than you? Do you think that the deception that hits the earth during the tribulation is unique to that time period? Or do you think the capacity for that sin is in your heart right now? This is this is global. This is not a dispensational, you know, time warp here that we're talking about. The, capacity to worship the Antichrist resides in every human being's heart. This is how we are born. We come into this world loving sin and rebelling against God. We are out of the box. We come into this world with our factory preset condition as depravity. I don't even like the the idea that we're inclined towards sin because it's not an inclination it's not like when you're born in this world you're teetering here you could go good or you could go bad and you're just kind of inclined and you you're nudged down the side of sin and you'd spend your life rolling into sin you could have gone the other way but you you tilted towards sin and it's all over for you it's not an inclination it's a love it's not an inclination it's an affection in your heart every person is born into this world loving sin and running from god that's how we come Think of the language in Genesis 6 when God says he's going to flood the earth. He declares to Noah that Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think of all those inclusive phrases. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. The Holman renders that verse, man's wickedness was widespread on the earth. Every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. That's our heart. This is our condition that requires the gospel. You might think, how does this show the Antichrist's weakness? Because the Antichrist can't change a heart. The Antichrist feeds on our depravity. The evil that dwells in our heart, we don't have the capacity to change it, nor does he. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his spots? Can a leopard uh, change his skin? Can a, a leopard change his spots? The image is picturing a leopard looking in the mirror. I'd like to move this spot over there. Today, all these spots on the front half. Today, the left side of me is spotted. A leopard can't move his spots. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the leopard change his spots? Then a human can teach his heart to do good. John 3, 19, Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is our lot. We're born into this world loving darkness sin, lost in the darkness of sin, lost in the love of this world, so much so that you understand the capacity to worship the most evil person in the world's history resides in every single human heart, even right now. The people in the tribulation are not more gullible than you. They're not more susceptible to the evil influences of the world than you. They, they are you. They are you. You. The capacity for evil in your heart is seen here in this verse when the world worships the Antichrist. We would fall prey to the devil himself were it not for the bright light that shines against this this black backdrop of depravity. This is the condition that requires the greatness of the gospel, namely our depravity. Secondly, the election that allows the gospel. The condition that requires it is depravity. The election that allows it, predestination. You see this in the next part of verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist. And now this subset, this exception clause here. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. There's a subgroup here that does not worship the Antichrist. Everybody in the world will worship him except for this this little group of people here. So everybody in the earth worships the Antichrist except for this small group of people here. And what separates them from everybody else? What's the causal difference between them and everybody else? One thing. One thing only, and that is having their name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's it. Having the name written in the Lamb's book of life, that is the only distinguishing feature between those that worship the Antichrist and those that do not. Now, there's lots of secondary differences. The people that worship the Lamb, they have lots of secondary differences in their life, but none of them are a causal difference. There's only one causal difference between this group of people and those that worship the Antichrist, and that's having their name written in a book. That's it. Their names are written in the book. They're written in the book by name. You find the book. The title of the book is (laughs) Eternal Life. The title of the book is The Lamb's Book of Life. The cover of the book, The Lamb's Book of Life. You open it, and it's a list of names. It's not a list of countries. It's not a list of families. It's not a list of schools. It's not a list of denominations. It's a list of individual names. That's it. It's stunning that God elects people by name before they're born. He says, before the world was made, before Genesis 1-2, this names, these names were written. Before God spoke the earth into existence, he recorded the names in a book. By name. You remember Jeremiah chapter 1, where God says, Jeremiah, you're going to go and be a prophet, and Jeremiah says, no, thank you, and God says, you don't get the veto power on my plan in your life. Before you were Actually, God says, before I made you in your mother's womb, before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you. It's a crazy thing to say. Who is there to know? Before Jeremiah was in his mother's womb, who is there to know? I remember one of the toughest questions my youngest or my oldest daughter asked me when she was a little girl. She said, where was I before I was in mommy's tummy? And the instinctive answer was, you were with God. (laughs) Wait, no, that's the Mormons. Sorry. Sorry. I think we just taught our daughter heresy. <laughs> Where was I? Well, you didn't exist yet. Question two Did God know me then? Yes. Question three for my five year old daughter How? How? Who did he know? If I didn't exist, who did God know if I wasn't alive? If I didn't exist, who did he know? And I told her, I quoted this verse, God knew you by name. Time for bed. (laughs) Before your parents knew each other, God knew your name. Before your parents Googled really cool baby names that not everybody has, God knew your name. And he wrote your name in a book, and it had nothing to do with how you would live your life. It had nothing. He didn't write you in the book because of anything in you. He didn't write your name in the book because of of anything he saw you doing. He wrote your name in a book based on no other decision except his own. God puts the names in his book based on his own free will, not on your choice. There's no election that goes into this in terms of voting. There's one person votes in this. The Trinity pools their votes. They vote as a unit, You see in Revelation 12, the devil hurls accusations against God's elect. God expels the devil from heaven. Nobody can undo God's election here. This is a personal election where he chooses people by name and he chooses them for eternal life and he keeps them from worshiping the Antichrist. He changes their hearts. The whole world is deceived. The whole world is plunged into darkness. The whole world loves sin and runs from God except for this group of people whom God chooses before they're born by their name to save them, protect them, to predestine them is the language Here he writes down that they Have their way for eternal life It's not everybody He doesn't write every name down This is not an exclusive list of every human being who would ever live. This is a smaller list. It's smaller than the majority of the people. It's the narrow way that leads to salvation. If most people had their names in this book, the grammar of this verse would be entirely switched. It would say, the whole world was written in the Lamb's book of life except for those who worship the Antichrist. And then your election would be based on how you worshipped in your life. But it's the other way. The whole world is worshipping the Antichrist except for those whom God set apart from before they were born. Or as it says in Romans 9, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose in election might stand, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God chose them before they did anything, before they wrestled in their mother's womb, so that we would learn election, a lesson about election. Ephesians says it this way, Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. That phrase, the foundation of the world, it's an idiom. It means before time began. Some translations even render it that way. Before God put the earth on the pillars. That's why it's an idiom. There's no actual pillars. Don't look. Before God spoke the earth into existence, these names were known and written. No name can be lost from this. The name can't be taken out. The Antichrist doesn't have an eraser for this book. This is more secure than the laws of the Medes and the Persians. When God predestines a soul, it's as good as finished. Your salvation was secured in that sense. It was uh, allowed before God even created the world. And in the future, those in the tribulation, the whole earth will be plunged into worshiping the Antichrist except for those whom God chose to save before they were even born. And that is exactly the way the world works now. That if you follow the Lord, it's because your name is in this book. This book was not published in the first year of the tribulation. This book has your name in it. And those whose names are not in the book worship sin, they worship the devil, they worship the Antichrist. Remember here that election is one direction. Predestination is one directional here. It's not reciprocal. It's not that God predestines some for heaven and predestines others for hell. It's not that he elects some for heaven and elects other, others for hell. That's not the way this verse reads. This verse reads that he elects some for heaven and he leaves the, the rest to worship the Antichrist. It's always presented positively in scripture. He chooses to save some and not chooses to save all. It's not that he chooses to cast some into hell and rescue others. He's always choosing to save some and turn others over to the depravity that's in their heart. That's how Paul says it in Second Thessalonians two nine. He says people will worship the Antichrist. The one who comes, whose power is in working with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those that perish. And they will perish, he says, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So when people in the tribulation are described as going to hell, it's because they would not receive the truth. When they're described as going to heaven, it's because God wrote their names in a book before they were born. And no one can be taken out. Exodus 32.32. God would not blot any name out from the book of life. Moses begged God not to destroy Israel, pled with him in Exodus 32. And God said, I will never blot a name out of my book. This is the election that allows it. You see the condition that requires the greatness of the gospel. Depravity, you see the election that allows the greatness of the gospel. Predestination, thirdly, you see the substitution that achieves it, the substitution that achieves the gospel, namely atonement. See this in the rest of verse 8. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the subtitle of the book. The title of the book is Eternal Life. The contents of the books are names. The copyright of the book, before God created the earth. The subtitle of the book, the Lamb that was slain. Before the foundation of time, God chose not only who to save, but how to save them. He chose what he would do to save them, namely atonement. The Lamb was slain in the mind of God before God spoke the world in existence. He was slain for the names that are in the book. That's the whole point of this. The names are in a book. The Lamb died for those names in the book. His death was chosen by God, planned by the Father before time, and the recipients of it are described here by their own name. This has always been the plan. The cross was not plan B to make salvation possible for everyone. The cross was plan A to save those whose names are in the book of life. The death of Jesus is the bridge between depravity and election. People, are, say, uh, people are, are damned because of their depravity, and God makes a bridge. He will not let everyone go to hell. He makes a bridge from the depraved heart to the saving grace of God. That bridge is election, and the method of getting across that bridge is the death of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, and so see how now we've entered into time. Before time began, names were in the book. In time, Jesus came to the earth and died for those names. He was the lamb. He was the substitutionary sacrifice. The shedding of blood is what provides the remission of sins. The innocent one dies. The Antichrist is incapable of even thinking like this because in in a real sense, the Antichrist hasn't been sinned against, so he can't provide reconciliation. The gap between righteous God and sinful man cannot be bridged by the Antichrist. It cannot be bridged by sin. It cannot be bridged by any political leader or any manifestation of human ingenuity at all. The only way across that gap to righteous God and sinful man is the death of the substitute, the death of the lamb. That's why John the Baptist proclaims, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Here he comes. This is the one who provides the names of the book. This is the one who who tells you what the, the contents are. If you didn't know what a telephone was, the yellow pages would be confusing. Do you remember what yellow pages were? Do you even bring them inside or they go straight to the recycling box? That's what happens in my house. Drives the guy crazy. He hands them off to my hand. I drop it in the recycling box. And he says, could you at least wait until I turn around before you do that? If you don't know what a phone is, what's the point of the book? If you don't know what the lamb is, what's the point of the names inside of it? You have to know the names that are there because the lamb will provide salvation for them. When the fullness of time came, God became a man to bear our sins. This is a great example of the death of Christ being linked to a list of specific names. This is a definite atonement passage where Jesus dies for, it's described you as specific names who will be saved. He dies for all of the sins those people would ever commit, even those in the tribulation. He desi- dies for the sins that all of his elect would ever commit through all time. My church recently got new carpet. And I was hanging out in the, the balcony of the church and talking to a college student and the person who put in carpet, they ran out of carpet for one set of stairs. So it's, it's actually kind of like this where there's four sets of stairs but one of them was uncarpeted. Just the top stair was covered. The other three were, were naked stairs and the, the college student tells me I feel like I've sinned too much that Jesus can't forgive me of all of my sin and he compares it to the carpet in the church. Says, so I feel like the death of Jesus can cover most of my sins but There's these few sins that I I don't understand how his forgiveness could be so great as to cover even those. It's as if the death ran out of carpet. (laughs) It just can't cover everything. Well, the next Sunday, there was more carpet on the stairs, and I made a point of going over to him and showing him, you know, the stairs are totally covered now. (laughs) The death of Jesus covers every sin you could ever commit, including, and listen, this is important, including the sin of unbelief. If your name is in the book of life and you've committed the sin of unbelief, which all of us have because that's the way we were born, that sin too is covered by the death of the Lamb. The death of the Lamb covers even that. Jesus dies and the sins of those whose names Record in the book are atoned for. That's the substitution that achieves it. The death of Jesus makes your salvation so secure he could proclaim from the cross to telestai. It is finished was his cry. It was actually proclaimed and accomplished at that moment. Your salvation was secure before you were even born when Jesus died on Calvary and you were justified by his resurrection again before you were even born. It's all conditioned upon your election again before you were even born. So that when you come into this world you understand that when you're born into this world even though your heart is running from God even though your feet are running from God even though your eyes are closed to God even though your ears are stopped to God even though your whole life is getting away from Him if your name is in the book and the Lamb died for you your salvation is secure even at that moment. This is the confidence for those even in the midst of the tribulation that the book is written the Lamb is crucified salvation is Is achieved. The condition that requires it is depravity. The election that allows it is predestination. The substitution that achieves it is atonement. Fourthly, the illumination that brings it. The illumination that brings it because you can call this regeneration, the new life that you receive. Because remember, if you're born into this world, when I was born into this world, I was not born into a Christian family. I was born into a non-Christian family. My heart loves sin as every human being's heart is when they're born. I had no time for the things of God. I had no love for the things of God. I had no knowledge of the things of God. And when I was confronted with them, my feet ran away from them but I'm a Christian now. At that time, when my feet were running away, do you understand that my salvation was secure even then? Now, my heart is inclined towards God. It has been opened towards God. I have spiritual life. I have eyes to see and ears to hear. What has changed between then and now? Because it's not that my salvation was accomplished. That happened before I was born. So what changed between the non-Christian days and the Christian days? It's, it's one word, regeneration. I was brought to spiritual life. That's what you see in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And that is a, it's an idiom. It's a proverb almost. And it is a very strange phrase to have right here in the middle of the description. What's happening in Revelation 13 is the first beast from the earth and the second beast from the sea, the Antichrist and the false prophet are on the scene. In the middle of their description, John drops this phrase in. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. What does that mean? And what's it doing here of all places? It's describing the new life that comes from faith. You know, people understand that Jesus talked in parables as a form of judgment. He didn't talk in parables as a way to make himself more easily understood. I've heard people say that, and they're like, oh, you should tell stories, because people learn from stories better than anything else. That's why Jesus talked in parables. No, no, and no. Jesus talked in parables to judge people because they wouldn't listen to his teaching. Parables were designed to obscure, not expose. And this is from Mark 4, verse 11. When Jesus told his first parable, the disciples came up to him later in the day and said, Ah, that was different. We've been listening to you for two years. You never talked like that before. What's up with story time? And Jesus said, to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside will only hear parables, so that while seeing, they will see and not understand. While hearing, they'll hear and not perceive. Otherwise, they might turn and be saved, Jesus says. I speak in parables so they don't know what I'm talking about. They don't have ears to hear. You know, from that parable, he turns around and he encounters the deaf mute. Nobody was more to be pitied in the... the, ancient Near Eastern, the Greco-Roman world, than a deaf mute. People didn't know he was deaf. A deaf mute couldn't hear. He could, of course, perceive lips and got good at discerning emotions from people but he couldn't understand silly, so he couldn't hear anything, so he'd make sounds. They thought they were mentally insane. People thought, they didn't understand that deaf-mutes were deaf, they just thought they were, there was something wrong in their heads, and so they were often hurled into insane asylums, or left to fend for themselves in the streets. Jesus finds one of these deaf-mutes, and remember, sticks his fingers in his ear, spits on his tongue to demonstrate, I know what the problem is. The problem is his ears don't work right. And then he compares that to the, the Jews that are rejecting his teaching. They hear his parables like that, like the deaf mute. They hear the parables like that. They, they see Jesus' lips moving, but they don't understand what he's saying. It's like Charlie Brown's teacher talking. That's how the non-Christian approaches the word of God. They don't understand because they do not have ears to hear. I mean, have you ever wondered, preaching the Revelation right now, am I, I'm astonished by how clear the prophecies are about the future how clear they are about what's happening in the future. I mean, there's things that are named from the nations to the the number of the Antichrist. You get so many details about this, and you wonder, when this stuff happens, why won't everybody just say, this is what's going on in the book of Revelation? Won't the unsaved world recognize that? I mean, you think, like they're watching TV, and they're like, see, oh, the Antichrist has signed a covenant of peace in Jerusalem. This is what the Bible says, ah! Do they not see it? And no, they don't see it because they don't have ears to hear it. They have no capacity to understand it. And that's true even now. The non-Christian reads the verses that we just looked at. Names written in the land's book of life before the foundation of the world and they don't understand a simple phrase like that. How could my name be written before I was born? Lamb's book of life, who's the lamb? Uh-huh. They don't understand because they do not understand have ears to hear but then God comes and he opens people's ears in time he doesn't open everybody's ears he opens the ears of those for whom the lamb has died he opens the ears for those whose names are written in the book of life so that even in the tribulation they read these words And they understand because they have spiritual life. They have eyes to see. They have ears to hear. They have hearts that love. They come alive. Even in the darkest of days, there is spiritual life that is brought by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why here, in the middle of the tribulation, John drops this phrase, let he who has an ear, let him hear. Those with hearts that love the Lord, whose names are in the book, they will have the capacity to hear and understand spiritual truth that the rest of the world does not have because they refuse to receive the love for the truth. Well, the condition that requires the gospel is depravity. The election that allows it is predestination. The substitution that achieves it is atonement. The illumination that brings it in your life—that's regeneration. Fifthly, the sovereignty that keeps it. The sovereignty that keeps it. And you could call this perseverance. Perseverance. You see this in verse ten. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Now, if there is a contest for the strangest New Testament use of an Old Testament verse. This verse would win, I think. This is probably the most, what initially strikes you as out-of-place Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, this is from Jeremiah 15, where God tells Jeremiah, go tell the Israelites, you're going to be a prophet. Jeremiah says, no. God says, remember, I named you before you were born. Jeremiah says, I don't understand, but I'll go, I guess. God tells him to tell everybody in Jerusalem to leave, pack your bags, get out of town, because I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. They don't listen to Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah, go tell them again, because death for them is coming. And then God asks them this question. Jeremiah, what if one of them asks you, where should we go? And you think, that's a great question. Where should the Israelites have gone? Where should they have gone? Jeremiah says, get out of Jerusalem. Okay, where do you want me to go, God? And God says, this is Jeremiah 15. God says, I got a couple choices for you. Jeremiah 15, verse 1. First he says, Yahweh speaks to me. Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, my heart wouldn't turn towards this people. Send them away from me. God tells Jeremiah, stop praying for the Israelites. If Moses prayed for them or if Samuel prayed for them, I wouldn't listen to their prayers. And Jeremiah, you're no Moses and you're no Samuel. Poor Jeremiah. (laughs) And God says, where should they go? They have four choices. Jeremiah 15, verse 2. Some will go to pestilence they're destined for it some will go to the sword because they're destined for it some will go to famine because they're destined for it some will go to captivity because they're destined for it i will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers yahweh says the dogs to tear the sword to kill the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy you have four choices about where you want to go you can be eaten by a dog ripped apart by a bird cut in half by a sword or die by famine those are your four choices be cheerful jeremiah give them that message <laughs> Now you jump to the New Testament. The Antichrist is reigning on the earth. The earth is worshiping him. 144,000 Jews are hidden in the wilderness. The gospel is going forward to the Gentile lands all over the earth. The gospel is, is going forward. There's the greatest revival in human history is taking place in the earth. as all kinds of people come to faith in Christ. The church is, is gone at this point. The church has been raptured, but the gospel is still here. And people are getting saved more than have ever been saved before. It's a global revival that is breaking out. People from every nation, from every tribe, from every ethnic group. All over the world, people are coming to faith in Christ. When the Antichrist can't get the 144,000 Jews, he turns to destroy the, the Christians in the earth. He can't kill the Jews, so he'll go after the Christians, and he starts slaughtering them around the world. They don't worship the Antichrist because their names are in the book of life. Their salvation is secure because the Lamb died for them. They have ears to hear spiritual truth. So what should they do in the world then? How do they avoid the Antichrist? Where should they go? Those in Jerusalem, where were they supposed to go? Go to Babylon, they'd be slaughtered. Go to Egypt, they'd be slaughtered. Where should they have gone? Well, God says you will be slaughtered. This is the verse that John uses here in the New Testament to describe the condition of the Christians in the tribulation. What's going to happen to them? They will be slaughtered. They will die by the sword. They will be taken captive by the Antichrist. That will happen. Not every Christian, but many of them. But John encourages them by saying, this is the death that has been chosen for you by God. In the same sense that he chose your salvation, he chose the means of martyrdom as well. Some will be arrested. Some will be slain with the sword. Notice the irony. They have their names written in the book of life, but they will face a martyr's death. And you think, how in the world could that possibly be encouraging to them? (laughs) Like, oh, I was beginning to get scared about the tribulation, but fortunately, the Bible says that I'll only be taken captive or slain by the sword. So, praise Jesus. <laughs> because when it happens to people, they will know this is what God has chosen Amen. for me. And then there's this phrase at the end of verse 10, here is a call for the endurance, or if you have the New American Standard, the perseverance of the saints This is the phrase. This is where the phrase, the perseverance of the saints, comes from, is this verse. This is where that phrase appears in the Bible. This is a call for the perseverance of the saints. That the Antichrist is the most evil person to ever walk on the earth, and even he will not be able to take somebody's salvation away from them. He can kill them, he can jail them, but he cannot make them deny the faith. Angels can't make a Christian deny the faith. Heights and depths cannot make Christians deny the faith. Famine cannot make Christians deny the the faith. Demons can't do it. Nothing can do it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is for you in Christ Jesus. No one can bring a charge against God's elect, something the devil learned in chapter 12 where he began hurling accusations against the elect in heaven and found himself expelled. Nobody can take a name out of the book of life. This is what it means to persevere. This is what it means that you can't lose your salvation. And that's even such a flippant way to say it, that you can't lose your salvation. I don't lose my car keys anymore. It used to be my favorite thing to do was to lose my car keys on Sunday morning to make me late for church. It was, it was, my, it was my morning Sunday morning routine. So I invented a hook. I, I've patented it. You can put a hook on your wall and always leave your car keys there. It's a great idea. And now I don't lose my car keys anymore. That's not what your salvation is like. It's not that like, oh, I know where it is because I remember where my salvation I remember that I'm a Christian. That's not what the perseverance of the saints means. Not just that you won't lose it. It means that you will actually persevere that you will actually keep on keeping on, that you will actually keep pressing forward in the faith, that no matter what the world throws at you, no matter what the Antichrist throws at you, no matter what sin and the devil and the demons throw at you, that you will keep on keeping on, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And your perseverance, the motive for your perseverance is your love for Christ. The method of it is the knowledge here that everything that happens to you, every single persecution, every single martyrdom, every single example of persecution you can conceive of has been appointed by God and he's using it to keep you in the faith and you know about it before it happens you know about it before it happens because the Bible says this is what will happen to you so that when it happens to you you are not surprised as if anything strange or unusual is happening but you rejoice that you are accounted worthy enough to suffer with Christ Jesus this is the background for the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints Before you were even born, God chose you for salvation. And he will keep you in the faith. He will keep you, and the word here is in the faith. The perseverance of the saints in the faith is the word order in the Greek. You will persevere because you're a saint in the faith. That's what you keep on in. In the faith, you, it's the sphere. It's the word of sphere. You're inside of faith, and nothing can take you out. There is no hook the devil has that can pull you out. There's, there's no way, he, there's no threat that will get you out of the faith. You are always in the faith. Nothing can change that. Notice that the, the verb tenses in these three verses here are all over the map. They're everywhere if you go back to verse eight. Speaking of future, the Antichrist will, work, will be on the earth, and every human heart will worship him. Except for though, and now you're going to the past tense all the way before time. The name's written in the book of life. Now you're going forward to the lamb that was slain in time, but before you were alive. Now you're going in the future again that some of you will die and be taken captive, but you will always persevere. This is exclusive. It's, it's, it covers the whole timeline. It's exhaustive. There's no moment of human history that is not covered in these three verses. Before creation, in creation, at the cross, your present tense life right now at your birth when you are depraved and living out your depravity, your moment of conversion is here, your future perseverance is here. This is an umbrella language here. It's all wrapped up in here. God didn't just choose who to save. He chose how to save them. He didn't just choose who and how. He chose when to save them, namely at the death of Christ. He chose when to bring it to them in their life, namely through regeneration, and He chose how long He will save them for, namely forever. This is the call for the perseverance of the saints. This is future. The Antichrist is coming. The tribulation is coming. The rapture is coming, where Christians will be removed from the earth before this happens. So you think, sweet, what do I have to fear? Do you recognize that the spirit of Antichrist is already here? And I'm not talking about our presidential elections. <laughs> HRC, TRMP, they might add up to 666. I'm just saying. I'm not talking about that's not the spirit of the Antichrist. Little children, every spirit, every human spirit, every inclination of the heart. Every thought of the heart, to use language of Genesis 6, every inclination in your heart. Now, listen to me and apply this to your own heart. Little children, every inclination in your heart that does not confess Jesus Christ as Lord, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. I've told you the Antichrist is coming. Even now, his spirit is already here at work in human hearts. But if your faith is in Christ, though the spirit of the Antichrist tries to pull you away, and though he has power unrivaled in human history, and though every human heart is depraved, though all those things are true, the Antichrist cannot, cannot save anyone, he cannot damn anyone, he cannot die for anyone, and he cannot give his life for anyone. He has no sovereignty. Even that spirit at work right now is only at work by the permissive will of God. And if your faith is in Christ, it's kryptonite to him. He cannot lift a finger to touch you eternally because he is not sovereign. Little children, we are from God. We're thankful, Lord, that you have saved us you have changed our hearts and we're thankful for the promise in scripture that though the spirit of the antichrist is in the world greater is he who dwells in us than he who is in the world thankful that you've given us your spirit as a seal a deposit a guarantee that you will bring us home to glory with you lord we don't tremble for the devil we tremble not for him because our salvation is not from him and nor can he take it from us Oh Lord, we bask in the knowledge. Despite our depravity, which necessitates the gospel, you have provided it. You've chosen us, you've died for us, you've called us, and you will keep us in the faith. We worship you for that. In Jesus' name we pray.